you're not already there, go ahead and turn to Isaiah chapter 1. Uh, Just a quick comment on that song, The Cleansing Wave. I was thinking about it as we were singing it. I believe the lady who wrote it was of a background of of part of what was known as the Holiness Movement. And um, one one of the challenges in Christian experience has been this question of whether we achieve perfection in this life. Do we ever get to a point where we entirely stop sinning? And I think that... um, I think probably our particular theological stream, our challenge is to lean toward, no, we'll never get to a place where we stop sinning. So then sometimes it's like, well, why bother? Because God's already forgiven it and it's going to be okay. And, you know, and so we can become very, very passive and very uh, unconcerned about our sinfulness. On the other hand, if we go to the extremes that some in the holiness movement at various points in history have gone, we might start to have to redefine what sin is to say, well, we don't sin anymore. Well, but we kind of do, but we don't sin intentionally anymore. Well, I guess I did do that thing last week. Well, and we just sort of have to keep changing the definition of what sin is. The advantage or the, 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 the thing that they draw up from Scripture is we should strive to no longer be sinful. And that's absolutely true. And the thing that we tend, I think, to draw from Scripture is the fact that God is merciful towards sinners and he forgives our sin. But the reality is we've got to bring both of those things together, both the fact that we should no longer continue in sin and the fact that God is merciful when we do. Israel certain, or the people of Judah certainly need to be reminded of that as we look at this passage this morning here from Isaiah chapter 1. We see here children who reject their father, rulers who pillage the weak, impure metal that needs to be purified by fire. What do all of these pictures have in common? These are the different ways that Isaiah describes the people of Judah as God brings judgment against them, the scene being a kind of divine courtroom. In Isaiah 1, we see that God righteously judges the unjust. All these pictures, disobedient children, wicked rulers, and impure metal, are used by Isaiah on behalf of God as God puts his people on trial to rebuke their sin, as God calls them to repentance, and as God proclaims his righteous purpose. There are three audiences here in this chapter. The first is heaven and earth. The second is the rulers and the people themselves. And finally, seemingly, Jerusalem herself. Let's begin by seeing how God calls heaven and earth to witness the sin of the people in verses 2 through 9. God calls creation to witness the sin of his people when he says, Listen, O heavens, and hear, O earth, for the Lord speaks. I'm going to call my first witness to the stand. What have you observed? Here's what's true about my people. God's people, first of all, were disloyal. God was their father, but they acted and rebelled as though they didn't even know God. Worse than even livestock. Now, some of you in the church have livestock. Most of us don't. So the closest parallel would be something like a pet that you have, a dog or a cat. Uh, When you call, they might or might not come to you, particularly if it's a cat versus a dog, but they know who you are, right? That animal knows who you are. 
there is some recognition this is the person who feeds me this is the person who gives me shelter and whether you know however limited that relationship is it still exists god is saying that their acknowledgement of him was so lacking that it was worse than even animals think of the most um, disconnected pet that you can think of the one that ignores the master the most the people of Israel didn't even have that level of respect for and relationship with and attachment to God. It's as though they didn't even know God. Oh yeah, him? Yeah, we don't know him. That was the level of extent to which they were despising God and their relationship with him. And this was all the more surprising because God addresses them as sons. I've brought them up. They're my family. It's the, the sense of betrayal is greater than if it was just, you know, here's some random person I was kind to one day. There had been a long-standing relationship between God and his people, and despite that, they acted as though they didn't know him. They had no respect for him. They despised him. These sinful people spurned God. That's why they're described as sinful nation in verse 4. People weigh down with iniquity, offspring of evildoers, sons who act corruptly. Just different ways of saying the same thing. They're sinful, they love their sin, they have rejected God, they've despised Him, and they've turned away from Him. How is God described here? He's described in several different ways throughout Isaiah 1. Here He's described as the Holy One of Israel. Their rebellion, their rejection is all the more striking because the Holy One of Israel expects His people to be Holy Ones themselves and they have wholeheartedly given themselves to sin and rejected and despised God, who is the Holy One. And not just the Holy One of some nation over there, the Holy One of their nation, the Holy One of Israel, their own God, they have rejected. So God's people were disloyal. That's the first thing that God calls heaven and earth to witness against His people. The second thing is that God's people persisted in sin despite terrible consequences of their sin. God strikes them with sickness, the whole head is sick, the whole heart is faint, from the sole of the foot even to the head. Nothing sound in it. Bruises, welts, raw wounds, and not, not treated according to the fashion of their day. Now, is this a description of actual sickness or of the general corruption of the people? It doesn't necessarily have to be one or the other. It can be both. It can be both a figurative picture of their spiritual condition and an actual description of the sicknesses and the plagues that God promised to send among them if they rejected his word. We see this at the end of the book of Deuteronomy. There's the blessings and curses. The people would be struck with plague, with enemies defeating them, with loss of all of their riches, if they rejected God and his law. And they were rejecting God and his law, and so it is entirely reasonable for them to be described in terms of sickness and to actually be experiencing various waves of sickness. As we were talking about in Sunday school, when you have a nation that has wholeheartedly given itself over to various sins, and not just sin in terms of, uh, all sin is bad, but not just sins like this person lied, or this person took something from someone else, but particularly sins that devalue and degrade life, when those sins become characteristic of a nation, that is both a sign of God's judgment and a sign of the, at least the beginning of the end for those people. Think about our own nation. Everybody keeps saying, when is COVID going to end? When are things going to get back to normal? Well, to the extent that we as a nation persist 
in gross immorality and disregard for human life, why should we expect that it would ever end? And the unfortunate result is, much like in the story of Jonah, you and I may not necessarily be the ones who are devaluing human life or committing immorality. I hope, I trust by God's grace, that's not us. But we dwell among a people who live that way. And so as God's judgment comes upon the nation, like it has come on every nation who's behaved in this way, Israel and Judah, Rome, Greece, all of the, the list continues. Every nation that has behaved in this way throughout history has eventually faced God's judgment. You know, people want to say, well, it was an imperialistic urge that sent people over from Europe to conquer the peaceful native tribes of the Americas. What did they do? They committed gross immorality. They played football with each other's body parts and sacrificed their enemies' beating hearts upon altars. Same kinds of horrific things were done in a slightly more civilized way over in Europe. Those nations in Europe faced waves of conquest. They faced waves of sickness, plagues, disasters. Here in America, those people faced disasters. We think that we're so superior to all of those previous generations that have gone before us, but we should expect that as people, we as a nation will face disaster if we devalue human life and if we commit immorality. And that's what we see the people of Judah doing in this chapter and why God is bringing judgment against them. Not only were they facing potentially sickness or at least disaster described in the language of sickness, but they were also facing conquest by their enemies. One more quick point on this idea of sickness. It is ironic that they are struck with shortened lifespans because of their idolatry, because they were committing idolatry in hopes of having long life, in hopes of having extended blessings and riches. So the irony was the thing that was supposed to secure those blessings for them was actually the reason all those things were being taken away from them. If they had simply followed God, God said that you would live long in the earth. God said that you would be blessed. But because they rejected God and sought all of those blessings from false gods, even the things that they were desiring were taken away from them. They wanted security and peace. And so instead of turning to God, they turned to their enemies. Instead of worshiping God, they worshiped the gods of their enemies. The result of that is God sends nations to invade and conquer and carry them away into captivity. And we tend to highlight the significant examples of this with the Assyrians taking out the northern tribes of Israel and the Babylonians with the southern tribes. But as we saw in Sunday school, in Kings and Chronicles, there were a number of invasions that took place of the lands of Israel and Judah because of their idolatry, whether it be the wandering Arameans, later the Syrians, whether it be the tribe of Israel attacking the tribes of Judah, whether it be Egypt coming up, Assyria coming down, Babylon coming over. There were all of these successive waves of conquest coming through the land because of their sinfulness. This was meant to be a warning to the people of Israel and yet they persisted in their idolatry. And there were certainly times when it was less. King Uzziah, to the extent that he followed God, had great military victories. 
They will look at his son Jotham to the extent that he followed God, great military victories. Ahaz, at the beginning, wholeheartedly abandons God, and the people begin to be defeated by the Syrians, by the northern tribes of Israel. And this, again, was meant to be a warning to the people that they did not pay attention to. This was ironic because they trusted in false gods, hoping that those false gods would give them peace, but the false gods were the reasons that they had no peace from the true God. And they found no deliverance because God is the one who delivered them. God then reduced their numbers. He says in verses 8 and 9 that there is, or verse 7, desolation. Verse 8, like a shelter, like an abandoned hut, like a deer stand out in the forest. That's what their numbers are like. Unless God had left us a remnant, a few survivors, we would be like Sodom and Gomorrah, wiped off the face of the map. Again, consider the irony of their goal and what actually took place. Their goal was to worship the Baals and the Ashtoreths and all of these other false deities because they promised fertility, abundance of children, etc., etc. The result of it is instead, because they worship these idols, God sent nations to kill and to conquer them, and so their numbers were reduced even less than when they began to be idolatrous. And so in striving after peace, they found war. In striving after fertility, they found fewer and fewer a dwindling population. In striving after health and long life, they found destruction and sickness and shortened lifespans. God calls heaven and earth to witness against his people for their disloyalty, for their stubborn persistence in sin despite God's ongoing judgment. And so now then God turns to the people themselves. He rebukes the leaders, picks up on this imagery of Sodom and Gomorrah. Unless God had spared us, we would be like those cities, wiped off the face of the map. Then he turns and addresses them. Leaders of the people, hey, you rulers of Sodom. Turns to the people, hey, you people of Gomorrah. If you're going to act like the nations that God wiped off the face of the map, I'm going to treat you like that's who you are. He's not saying they're actually Sodom and Gomorrah. They were judged long before in the book of Genesis. He's saying, you're behaving so wickedly, it's an apt comparison. He rejects their hypocritical obedience. He addresses them as Sodom and Gomorrah, describing their sinful state, God's pending judgment, and the danger in which they find themselves. He doesn't reject their empty ritualistic obedience. Verses 11 and 12. What are your multiplied sacrifices? I've had enough of your burnt offerings. I take no pleasure in the blood and the fat that you're offering to me. Who requires of you this trampling of my courts? It's as though here's this stampede that's running into the temple and then leaving. And God says, I want nothing to do with this. You are worshiping idols. You are committing murder. You are exploiting the people. You're sacrificing your own children, as we see in the case of Ahaz. You are committing all sorts of gross immorality to worship these false gods. Um, uh, ritual prostitution was a, a common feature of idolatry. So these groves, these high places, it wasn't just like they went sacrificed an animal and went home. They engaged in all sorts of immorality there as well. Along with the sacrifices and the incense and so forth. And drunkenness and all of these other things that God had rejected and God says, hey, you're going to go do that? 
And they're going to, you know, stampede into my temple and act as though everything's good. I will not accept your worship. Now, this stands in stark contrast to what we would anticipate because um, we have this idea in modern Christianity that God should just kind of be happy with whatever worship we want to bring to him. I showed up. I did my thing. You should be happy with it. But I think the parallel for us is probably thinking about the relationship between a parent and a child. If you show your kids how to do something, whatever it is, a particular task, and then they do it half-heartedly, or they don't finish it, or they do it in a completely different way, or they don't do it at all, And then they were to come to you and be like, hey, I'm done. How pleased are you as a parent? Not very. Perhaps not at all. <clears throat> Perhaps you've had one of those moments where you almost say, well, if I should have just done it myself. Now think about that in the context of worship. God says, Here how, here's how I want you to worship me. And the New Testament says, in spirit and in truth. And the Old Testament says, in holiness, according to these parameters that I've given you, here's all the very specific rituals and regulations. But the point of it was never about all those external things, although they were supposed to follow them, bring the sacrifice at this time, offer the sacrifice in this way, use the specific formulation of incense and not a different one. The goal would be that that sacrifice would be the sort of the pinnacle, the culmination of what was going on in their hearts, an attitude of worship to God and obedience throughout the week, not just sort of like, a, I did all this bad stuff, but now I'm going to kind of act like I'm doing what you want for this brief moment, and then you should be happy with the whole of my life. But that's what was going on. They were living wickedly, and then they'd show up at the temple, do their sacrifice however many times a year, be like, hey God, we did what you wanted. God says, I see right through that hypocrisy. What does that look like for us? If we have lust and envy and greed and selfishness and any number of other things in our hearts all throughout the week and we give in to those impulses and then we show up at church on Sunday and we sing songs to God, it may look good to everyone else around us. But how pleased is God with that? Our gathering, our praise, our service to God is supposed to be a life commitment, not just a few moments here and there that we think, oh, I did my time, I punched the clock, God got my hour and a half for the week, I'm good. That was the attitude of the people of Israel. I can do whatever I want for weeks and months at a time, even horrific things that God says are horrible, abomination, I reject these things, but God's still going to be happy with me because I'm one of his people and I showed up. God rejects their blending of sin and sacrifice. He says, don't bring these empty things any longer. I reject your festivals. I'm weary of this burden. And what's the result? I'm not even going to hear your prayers. There is an expression in either one of the historical books or prophetic books where it describes that the heavens will be as brass. 
It's like you send your prayers up and they're hitting a sheet of metal and coming right back down. God is a God of mercy and compassion who is patient with people, who hears the prayers of sinners, but he hears the prayers of repentant sinners. He doesn't hear and answer the prayers of stubborn, rebellious sinners who act like they're not sinners and then want him to do stuff for them but keep living in their sin and loving their sin. And that's the position in which the people of Judah find themselves. They love their sin, they live in their sin, and then they expect God to do stuff for them. God says, I'm not going to. Why? It doesn't matter to me that you're saying lots of prayers and making lots of sacrifices because, verse 15, your hands are covered with blood. Now, the covered with blood expression I think we will see in verses 21 through 23 is clarified what that looks like. What is it that God is angry with them about? But we see it to some extent in the opposite of what he's calling them to do. God calls them to repentant acts. He says, wash yourselves, make yourselves clean, remove the evil of your deeds from my sight, cease to do evil, learn to do good. We see that and we say, well, we can't work our way to God. And that's true. But what God is calling the people of Judah to here is not a kind of works righteousness that says, I will earn God's favor by doing good things. It is, is my life going to match my profession? In other words, think about John the Baptist with the Pharisees. They came, they wanted to be baptized. And John said, you brood of vipers, you unfaithful generation, do acts worthy of repentance. If you really mean it, your life is going to show it. It's not, I do good things and then God accepts me. It's because God has accepted me, I live out these things. And if I don't live out these things, it's quite often a sign that God has not accepted me and I don't belong to him. I don't know him. And what that would have looked like for the people of Judah would be, you're a follower of God only because you were born in the tribe because your family does it, because you grew up knowing what you're supposed to do, but your heart's not in it, you don't care about it. I think back to the period in American history when Jonathan Edwards was in churches, several different churches, and he's preaching, and he's preaching to people who think they know God because they grew up in church, but most of them are just in church. They're even members of the church because of something that, a decision that was made 50 or 100 years before, which basically said, we want to have enough people to keep the rituals of the church going, so we're going to let you join because you're a family, part of a family who's joined, even though you may not even profess God at all. What's the net result of that? You have churches filled with people who don't even know God at all, who think that they're Christians because they're attached to the church. And so he comes and he preaches. And when I say preaches, he literally just reads something like sinners in the hands of an angry God. And God uses those words that, that remind people of his wrath and his judgment against sinners to convict these people who never encountered God's word really up to that point in their lives. And we have this time period in which people turn to God because they realize, hey, I can't just say I'm connected with God because I show up at a building once a week. I am connected with God only if I truly have a relationship with him. That is what God is calling the people of Judah to. Don't just say, I'm one of the tribe of Judah, so of course I have a relationship with God. He's saying, if you really belong to me, if you really know me, here's what it looks like. 
our sin, be cleansed. Here's positively what it looks like. Learn to do good, seek justice, reprove the ruthless, defend the orphan, plead for the widow. Why are those the markers there? We tend to de-emphasize those, I think, because we're concerned about having a kind of social gospel in our churches today with, I think, a right concern about that at the turn of the 1900s because there were a lot of people who were basically saying, all you have to do to be a good Christian is help people who are poor. All you have to do to be a good Christian is try to clean up one of these dens of iniquity in your city, get people to stop drinking, get people to stop committing adultery, get people to stop killing each other in the streets. If you can accomplish that sort of social change, then you're a good Christian. Christianity is not defined by just fixing societal problems. But it's also not opposed to fixing societal problems. What I mean by that is just because people a hundred years ago said, here's the path to God, fix all the problems in society, we then I think have tended, as often happens in overreaction to bad theological trends, we've tended to swing to the other extreme and say, well, none of that stuff matters at all. But a passage like this says, if you don't treat orphans and widows, people who are vulnerable, rightly, that is a, a marker that something's wrong with your heart. So if you don't care about justice at all, it's a sign that something's wrong with you. Now, the phrase justice and vulnerable people and all these sorts of things has been twisted in a number of ways in our society. Obviously. Someone who says, I'm going to live a lifestyle that is wicked in a way that is bizarre and then say, I'm being persecuted or being hated because people say what you're doing is strange. We're not even talking about like someone tries to kill you because you're living that way. We're just saying someone says, hey, what you're doing is just weird and wrong. And then that person gets defensive and says, you're being hateful to me. That's where we're at in society. That's not justice to say... Well, we just need to sort of accept everybody and say anything and everything is okay. Because as much as people would like to deny it, the net result of living that way is you start out with things like adultery and you end at things like bestiality and abuse of children. And the two points are connected even if there is a however many years gap between them. That being said, there is a right accusation that some of those people would bring against us as Christians, which is to say, you don't seem to care about these people who have all of these different needs. And it is challenging to walk through that in a way that honors God. Yes, what this person is doing is wrong. But yes, God also says we have to love and minister to people who are in similar situations. And, you know, maybe it's not that person that's chosen a lifestyle of sin in that way. Maybe it's the person who's lived irresponsibly and now finds himself homeless. Uh, maybe it's the person who's made a series of bad choices and a lot of relationships and now is a single parent with lots of kids and no money and, and is having a very difficult life. Maybe it is, you know, whatever it might be, 
We tend to think about the parents who have made the bad choices in those sorts of scenarios and not think about the fallout on the kids when they get abandoned or caught between four households or whatever else. If we just say, well, you made your bed, you can lie in it, and we have no tangible expressions of compassion on those children, if we just say, well, obviously you shouldn't kill your children, but then we, don't, we genuinely don't care about the parents or those kids as they grow up, then there is a degree to which we're guilty of the same sort of attitudes that God reproves in this chapter. And obviously all that's very complicated because it's not as simple as just throwing money at the problem. Hey, this guy says, hey, will you give me 50 bucks? So you give him 50 bucks because you can't do that every day indefinitely, for one. For another, there's probably more effective ways to minister to people. But if we just say, well, a lot of people have taken advantage of other people, so we're never going to help anybody, then we've lost sight of the sort of attitude that we see in this chapter, which is help those who are in need as an expression of a right relationship with God and a heart that is concerned about what is just and right as God defines it, not as the world defines it. God then promises restoration tied to repentance. God's offer of forgiveness is genuine and transformative. What I mean by that is when God says, come and let us reason together and then I will forgive you, God is genuinely holding out forgiveness if people will come before him in repentance. When I say transformative, I mean though your skins, sins are as scarlet, they'll be white as snow, though they're red like crimson, they'll be like wool. Think about God's people as they hear these verses. You're a person of the tribe of Judah. You've gone and you've taken your infant and you've killed your infant with your knife. Or you've thrown your infant into a fiery idol and burned him alive so that you worship this pagan god. Their hands were actually not just figuratively stained with blood. And God is saying, even though your sins, your hands are bloody, your life is stained, I will forgive you if you turn away from it and come to me. Do you see the picture in this chapter set against the backdrop of what Israel and Judah were doing? God's offer is conditional, though. If you consent and obey. It's not God saying, well, do whatever you want, and I'll just overlook what you've done bad. It is, if you turn from it, you must actually turn from it, you will eat the best of the land. This parallels the blessings described in Deuteronomy. But if you refuse and rebel, you will be devoured by the sword. Truly the mouth of the Lord has spoken. God's judgment is certain if they do not repent. We'll see this again at the end of the chapter. This is not contradicting what we're going to see at the end of the chapter where it seems like God says, I'm going to restore you anyway. This is the, are you going to experience my judgment now or am I going to hold off on it? The end of the chapter is, my plan is, despite your wickedness, I'm going to restore a remnant of the people back to the land. The one is an offer for the people who are hearing it in Isaiah's day. The other is an offer of hope for what God's going to do for future generations, despite whatever they do here and now. So there's two different um, groups of people in mind. The third section of this chapter is when God turns seemingly to the city of Jerusalem herself 
as the prime example of the wickedness of the people. God laments over Zion, Jerusalem, and foretells her future restoration despite a seemingly hopeless present. And notice the shift from Sodom and Gomorrah in verses 10 through 20 to what we will see in verse 27 where Jerusalem is described as Zion. Looking to the future hope God holds out. God begins by lamenting the degradation of the righteous city, how far it has fallen, how this faithful city has become a harlot, she who once was full of justice, righteousness once lodged in her, but now murderers. As an immoral woman takes in men, not her husband, or for that matter, an immoral man, same thing, Jerusalem took in sin, murder, injustice, instead of righteousness, and lost her unique value. Verse 22, your silver has become dross, your drink diluted with water. By trying to secure for herself pleasure and blessing and all of these things through idolatry, she has become corrupted from God's design for her, and she has become devalued both in the eyes of the people and in actuality. What I mean by that is there is a cheapness about repeated sin. It is both unsatisfying and it is degrading. And that's what I think Isaiah is getting at here in this verse, these two verses. What does this look like? Leaders who exploited instead of guiding the people. Your rulers are rebels and companions of thieves. Everyone loves a bribe and chases after rewards. They do not defend the orphan, nor does the widow's plea come before them. Now, I talked about the ways in which they could be a literal, your hands are stained with blood, as they offer pagan sacrifices of their children and of other things to foreign gods. But here, I think the emphasis goes back to more a figurative abstract connection between their perversion of justice and the downstream effects of it. If the rulers do not accomplish justice, what happens? Murderers prevail, the innocent die, the land is turned from justice to injustice and hopelessness. The leaders exploited the people. They stole they said, hey, you give me money, I'll let you off the hook. Who gets the short end of the stick in that scenario? The people who have no money. So the poor and needy, the ones whom God said they were supposed to be helping, having concern for, all these sorts of things. Think back to that passage that we looked at in the Sunday school hour. The captives of war, the, the wicked nation of Israel, for a brief moment, listens to the prophet pays attention to the needs of the orphans and the widows, or at least the widows and those who now no longer have fathers because they've been killed in battle, provides for them, cares for them, sends them back to their homes. In that brief moment, the wicked people of Israel behave more righteously than the wicked people of Judah in that they showed concern for the orphan, the widow, reproved the ruthless, and sought justice. But here, the rulers of Judah say, hey, we don't care about those who are in need. Hey, we don't care about those who are poor. We don't care about those who are going to be hurt if we take bribes instead of doing what's right and just. We don't care about those who are going to be harmed if we do what we want instead of doing what the law requires of us. We want what we want. What's God's response to the unfaithfulness of Jerusalem? God describes his plan for restoration that is going to be a purging process. 
Therefore the Lord God of hosts, the mighty one of Israel, declares, verse 24, Ah, I will be relieved of my adversaries and avenge myself on my foes. I will also turn my hand against you. So there is an extent to which God is going to defeat his enemies, but he says, but wait, you're not off the hook, people of Judah. You are in this instance my enemy because you have turned away from me and you have gone after idols, but I am not going to give up on you. Instead, I am going to purge you with destruction until you are what you were meant to be. I will smelt away your dross as with lye and remove all your alloy. It's like you take the metal and you put it in the fire and all the impurities are burned away. Does that hurt? If you were that piece of metal and, and you were flesh instead of metal, that would hurt. This is going to be a painful process for the people of Israel to be carried up, off into captivity, to lose everything, to have their family members killed, all of these other sorts of things. But God is going to do it because he wants these people to follow after him faithfully and wholeheartedly instead of pursuing idols. What's going to happen eventually after God has completed that purification process? I will restore your judges as at the first and your counselors as at the beginning. After that, you'll be called the city of righteousness, the faithful city. God declares his plan for restoration. He'll use judgment to purify his people. He'll restore the people to their original design and even better than at the first because not only will they be following God, but they will have rejected all of their disobedience and so they'll look back on that they'll see how God has purged them they will rejoice in that and now they will follow God faithfully after having been through that great testing and trial but God also warns sinners that opposing his purpose will lead to failure verses 27 to 31 Zion will be redeemed with justice and her repentant ones with righteousness whose justice whose righteousness God's but transgressors and sinners will be crushed together, and those who forsake the Lord will come to an end. If you try to oppose God's purpose, you're going to be crushed, because God will prevail. This reminds me of the passages like in Matthew 21, where it talks about Jesus being the chief cornerstone, and it will crush all those on whom it falls, and those who fall on it will be utterly broken, like falling down off a cliff onto sharp rocks. Uh, those who oppose God's purpose will fail. They will be destroyed. God's purpose will stand. And then I think it turns back briefly to the people in verses 29 through 30, where it says, Surely you will be ashamed of the oaks which you have desired and embarrassed at the gardens which you have chosen. For you will be like an oak whose leaf fades away or as a garden that has no water. The strong man will become tender, his work also a spark. Thus they shall both burn together and there will be none to quench them. This is a warning, I think, going back to the people of this day. The future generation, God is going to restore through testing from idolatry. But this generation is going to be destroyed. They have desired these groves of oaks for false worship. They are going to... They, they go to these, these groves and commit immorality and adultery. God says, I'm going to expose this and make you ashamed of it. He says, you're going to be like a dead tree or a spring that dries up, a garden with no water. There's this also this fascinating concept in the Old Testament of people becoming like what they worship. 
And in this imagery, he says, you've worshipped in, you've worshipped these trees, you've worshipped among these trees, you're going to become a tree and you're going to be burned up. And what's the spark that burns you up? The continued work of your hands. Your idolatry is the spark that destroys you. So contemplate that picture for a moment. He closes this, after, after this, holding out this picture of hope, he closes it with this severe warning of, if you persist in your idolatry, not only will I destroy your idols, but I will destroy you, and the reason for it will be your own fault. As we look through this lawsuit that God brings against his people with heaven and earth as witness, and the city of Jerusalem is the prime example of wickedness, what parallels do you see with your own life? Do you despise the Lord? How might we do this today? Well, in the New Testament, we see a description of it as grieving the Holy Spirit. What does that look like? You know what you're supposed to do. You act like you're doing it outwardly, but inwardly you don't love God. You, you reject God. You live in sinfulness. This is to despise the Lord. If you do this, like the Israelites, you're behaving even worse than a pet, a piece, uh, an instance of livestock. You're rejecting your master, your owner, your Lord, your father. And so we need to examine our hearts because this same sort of wickedness that the Israelites committed can creep into our lives as well. And if we then persist in that, despite God's judgment, then we are being stubbornly sinful just like them. Do you perhaps bring empty spirituality before God as an acceptable sacrifice? Romans 12, 1 and 2 says God wants the entirety of our lives. God doesn't just want us coming to church and being able to quote Bible verses, showing up and singing hymns nicely. Uh, whatever else it might be that's an outward marker of spirituality that other people can see, but God knows our hearts. And I'm not saying that this is the case for any one of you, but I'm not saying that it's not. It is entirely possible for you and I to come to church, have been done terrible things during the week in terms of what's going on in our hearts or even our actions, and show up to church, put a smile on our face, sing the songs, quote the verses, say the right things in the discussion time, and not really love God. That is a danger we must always watch out against because that's the danger that God accuses the people of Israel about in the middle of this, this chapter. They're doing all the right things. But God says, I don't care that you're doing the rituals and the sacrifices and the gatherings and the feasts and all of these things. If your heart's not in it, if you don't truly love me, I want nothing to do with it. And so I think about this particularly with the kids of our church. Not that it doesn't matter for all of those who are in our 30s, 40s, 60s, 80s, and so on. But I think about this with the kids of our church. There is a real danger for you that if you don't really and truly love God in this moment, and as you are at home these last few years, that when you leave, you're not going to go to church. You're not going to follow God. If you're only doing it because your family is having you come to church, if you're only doing it because other people are watching, then when you leave your home, you're going to go your way and you're not going to come to church. You're not going to read your Bible. You're not going to pray. So the thing that I would urge you is this. Make sure that your relationship with God is not your parents' relationship with God, but your own. It needs to be something that is truly something that you love God and you desire God. Otherwise, we're just like the Israelites. We do the right stuff. As long as people are watching, when they stop watching, we quit doing it. And that can be true as well for middle-aged saints and older saints. We can just sort of fall in the habit of we know what we're supposed to do, we know what we're supposed to say, our heart's really in it.
We can't save ourselves. But if we acknowledge our sin, if we know what repentance looks like and we don't do it, then we're, we're behaving like these people of Israel. God says, I want works that fit with a profession of repentance. If you say you're someone who's repented, then live as someone who has repented in these ways that are described in the middle of the chapter. And then I close with this. Even in the midst of this condemnation of sin, God holds out hope that the disaster and devastation of sin will be turned to his sovereign purpose. He will use judgment against sin to purify his people of sin. The same is true in our lives. No matter how we've sinned, God can work in us to cleanse us. God will do what it takes to make us holy. Sometimes that path involves shame and destruction, but if we turn through God to God through Jesus and continue to turn to God through Jesus, we find forgiveness. And so, if anything, I think the lesson of this passage is turn to God sooner than later. Can God, use your life if you have lived a life of wickedness and you trust him when you're 60 or 80 or 100. Yes. How much better, though, to serve God with the entirety of your life and not waste so much of it like the Israelites wasted so much of their history. There is so much more that the people of Israel and Judah could have done for the cause of God's kingdom if they had not wasted their lives pursuing idolatry. And the same is true for each one of us. So we have the twin realities that God holds out hope. No matter what you have done, there is forgiveness and I can still use you. And the more you waste of your life, the less of it there is for God to use for his purpose. Listen. O heavens and hear, O earth, hear the word of the Lord. Come, let us reason together. The people of Judah didn't. hundred years later, they were carried away in captivity. But you and I still have time to listen and heed these warnings. God puts his people on trial to rebuke their sin, call them to repentance, and proclaim his righteous purpose. Let's learn the lessons that Judah did not. Let's pray. Dear God, we thank you for this opportunity to be here this morning. We pray that these truths from Isaiah 1 would not just be something that goes in one ear and out the other that we think about briefly today and then we abandon the rest of the week. But to the extent that we need to be convicted, convict our hearts, the extent to which we need to be encouraged about your restoration and forgiveness, remind us of that truth as well. The extent to which we have lost confidence perhaps in your sovereign purpose and the vision that you hold out for the future, remind us of that glorious hope. Whatever it is that we need to hear from this chapter, Lord, uh, bring it to our attention. Help us to reflect on it, even this week. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.